0: Hello to all my people, and if you're listening to this podcast, you are most definitely my people. Welcome to another episode of Botch Spots and Chair Shots. We still have high hopes of delivering quality wrestling content, but at worst, we'll deliver mediocre wrestling content, but we'll sprinkle in some sports news or college football, you know, so we still get over. I'm your host, a chef by trade and a mark by choice. I am the Will Gray, and I'm glad to be here with you on this journey, and today that journey will be Wrestling Russian Roulette. Remember, here at Botch, Bots, and Share Shots, we're calling in the ring from all the angles.
1: All right, everybody. Thanks again for joining me right now. The man with one yellow shoe, Bobby Mack. How are you, sir?
2: I'm doing great. How about yourself?
1: Doing well, man. Um, so today we're going to be talking about the War Games match. Um, when I start talking about War Games, everybody thinks most recently the big NXT branded event, but it dates all the way back to 87 with the Horsemen. Bobby, what's the first thing you think of when I say War Games?
2: When you say war games, I don't think NXT at all. Um, I'm thinking NWA, National Wrestling Alliance, uh, not the guys with attitudes. Um, I'm thinking Dusty. I'm thinking Nikita. I'm thinking the Horsemen, the Warriors, the Road Warriors. Um, I'm thinking that. Like I'm thinking old school violence, blood, guts, and really the only way to win is by submission.
1: I feel like the original war games versus the new war games definitely have two very different fills for them. Um, let's take a look at the original one that came through. Um, with the, you talked about the Road Warriors, Koloff, um, Rhodes, El Ring, and then you had the Horsemen. It was always kind of that hill versus face, and then they were always rotating back and forth who got released. So you always had the advantage, one side or the yeah.
2: other. Yeah, um, yeah, and you know the war games though. Like when you talk about the advantage. It the advantage always needs to go to the heel like that's what this match is set up to be it's the heels and then the faces get over and i think later on that's kind of like where they messed up a little bit was they started letting the heels like or start letting the faces get the advantage which doesn't make any psychological sense because why would why would a good why would a good guy double team a bad guy
1: true so uh looking back at it the original side the original one the horsemen were kind of the uh they were the hills at the point, right? Oh yeah. Yeah.
2: It was Flair, Luger, uh, Tully, Arn, and JJ Dillon. And that one involved the managers as well. So everybody knew the weak link was going to be the managers. Like no matter what JJ's career was back in the day or Paul Ellering's career was back in the day, those, are the guys that, you know, were past their prime as pro wrestlers. And now we're in that manager role and, you know, were the, were the speaking, you know, points like, you know, The horseman probably didn't need a speaker, but JJ was a great speaker. And the road warriors probably did lean a little bit more of a speaker with Paul Ellering. Um, But yeah, you always knew, okay, the managers are going to enter last, which one of those two are going to give up first.
1: (laughs) Do you think the managers at this point in the late eighties carried the clout that some of the other managers uh, later into the nineties did? Do you think this was more still kind of a turn and burn, like, ground and pound style manager these guys would take bumps and stuff regularly back then versus somebody like a hayman today who almost never well, takes a
2: bump Heyman is not a manager he's an advocate he's an advocate sorry advocate. advocate yeah um yeah you know in the late 80s early 90s managers were a lot different like they were they were mouthpieces like i think there's a story about rick rude didn't want to go with um, bobby heenan when he went to the wwf because he felt like he was over as a character but you'd put them with a certain manager because that manager was going to get them instant heat or get them instant um, fan favorites. You know, you put up, you put a tag team with Captain Lou Albano in the eighties, they're over right away. Like whether it's the killer bees, British bulldogs, or, you know, the machines, you put somebody with Bobby Heenan right away. Who'd Andre go with when he turned against Hogan, Bobby Heenan, um, Paul Warndorf turned against Hogan. Bobby Heenan. Rick Rude came into the territory. Bobby Heenan. Mr. Perfect. Bobby Heenan. Back then, managers had different clout than what they do now. The big difference, though, back in the w- WCW NWA days is those managers came from a background uh, as pro wrestlers. Paul um, Ellering, um, you'd say JJ. Uh, there's also um, uh god what is his name one of the worst managers ever um he fought with jimmy valiant for years but he was able to have a long career as a manager um in the nwa just because of his clout from the 70s and 60s as a pro wrestler so yeah back then yeah it was it was some roughneck managers but they really did you 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 could believe that jj or paul could turn something. Paul Jones is the guy I was thinking of. Paul Jones. Um, precious Paul Jones. Um, you could think about that and, you know, maybe L-Ring had one more shot. Maybe he had like just one more shot of adrenaline that could defeat Lex Luger, defeat Arne Anderson, or, you know, J.J. Same thing. Maybe he's, he's just one more splash away from a victory. So there was a believability of it. Um, you know, even a guy like Jim Cornette, who you don't believe has any athletic you know, prowess whatsoever. But you know, if the referee turns his back, Jimmy's gonna hit him with the um, the tennis racket and win the match.
1: I feel like a lot of those managers there had a lot more active role in the matches than they do now too. It's not, not specifically just the War Games match. Like you were just saying, the art of deception, especially with a Hill manager is lost in the art today. I don't feel like the guys today really have that kind of connection with their managers. where they build and tell the story throughout to where it's always two on one if you have the right manager
2: in your corner yeah like
1: like, i feel like that's lost in uh today's wrestling you don't really see that as much
2: yeah like the most a manager does nowadays is like smack the mat like if you look at somebody like you know we'll go to Heyman because he is the goat at this point he's the goat like i put bobby heenan jim Cornette, paul Heyman. And I would now say Paul is starting to battle Jim even more on getting over as much. Um, like Jimmy Hart. No,
1: Not
2: so I like alive. Jimmy. He's, I like Jimmy. He's a really nice guy. I have, he's, I've met him a couple times personally. He does really nice stuff. Um, I think Jimmy Hart in the early '80s when he was in Memphis was really really great. I think he was really good. In the 80s with the Hart Foundation and you know his uh his group. But I really feel like his legacy is diminished by the day that he turned with Hulk Hogan and became a face because I really think it it made him more of a stooge than a manager. Because Hogan didn't need him because Hogan's the ultimate face. And then when Hogan turned heel and should have used the Jimmy Hart, he instead used Eric Bischoff. So I think I think Jimmy Hart kind of diminished his own legacy by turning face with Hogan and Beefcake.
1: So who did you say your number one all time was? Bobby Heenan. You would definitely say Bobby Heenan.
2: Yeah, I definitely. I will go with every other person in the entire world and say Bobby the Brain Heenan was the greatest manager of all time in professional wrestling.
0: Okay. I,
1: why, I, who, who, why? Who? I, who do you say? Into my top three.
2: Okay, so now I'm curious, who's your other two?
1: Uh, surprisingly, I've said that Heyman recently became the best manager of all time. So I would say Heyman, then Cornette, then Heenan. Wow. So That's you
2: know, big. Cornette would probably fight you on that. Do what? Just for the fact that you put him above Heenan. Yeah. So Cornette would probably fight you on that just for the fact that you put him above Heenan.
0: Yeah?
2: Yeah, because he does not consider himself above heenan at all which is where which is rare for jim Cornette to actually have an ego come down and be like no i'm not as good as that guy
1: i feel like those but those three respectfully i always put jimmy hart in my top five too um one of my favorite jimmy hart stories was when i was sick i was in the hospital and i had just gotten out of the shower and you facetimed me at like two o'clock in the afternoon And I was like, this seems really weird. Why is Bobby FaceTiming me in the middle of the day? And you were standing there with Jimmy Hart. So I'm dripping wet, you know, just got out of a shower, IVs attached to me, and I'm naked talking to Jimmy Hart on the phone.
2: Which was weird, though. It was weird because me and Jimmy were doing the same thing.
1: Y'all were standing naked talking on the
2: phone. (laughs) (laughs) God.
1: Okay, uh, now let's get back to this match. (laughs) Um. So when I was doing a research preparing, for- in
2: another news, Mrs. Lincoln, how'd you like to play? <laughs> What's that?
1: I said okay. Um, so when I was doing some research for this match, uh, you and I talked a little bit about it before we started recording. They did it in two. That was the '87 is when they split the Great American Bash. Um, it was kind of like they mm-hmm. did. I think it was WrestleMania three, where they did it in two cities at once, or something like that.
2: WrestleMania okay. two. Um, they did New it York. in Chicago and New York.
1: Yeah, and this was kind of their version of that, the Great American Bash in Atlanta, Miami. So they did the, the original War Games match. They did it twice that year, about three weeks apart. Then I yeah. didn't realize they ran it as a house show feature for the better part of 1988 with a rotating cast of members. It was usually the Horseman versus someone. So I don't want to sound like we're bypassing a ton of War Games matches here, but they were ultimately all the same match. Um, because during that whole stretch in '88 leading up '87 leading through '88 leading up to '89, it was the horsemen as the main hill faction versus a crew of babyfaces.
2: faces Um, so one thing to think about though, in 1986, when the Great American Bash first started, it wasn't a single pay-per-view event. It was a multi-city event. Um, Dusty Rhodes had the idea of doing this summer bash, and that's what it actually was: was a great American bash. And it actually partnered up like where WWE or WWF at that point was doing the rock and wrestling connection. The great American bash with the NWA was a country music celebration with wrestling. So there was concerts like throughout, like David Allen Coe, um, Welling Jennings, like all these, you know, classic at this point, uh, country artists were actually doing concerts during the bash. So 86 was the first year, 87, it kind of blew up. Um, And then it had like this culmination of an event. Um, I don't know if it was on pay-per-view at that point. I think it might have still been closed circuit. Then 88 is when they kind of jumped the shark and went to the pay-per-view model where it was like, I think that main event might've been Luger and Flair and that's off the top of my head. So if I'm wrong, send me hate mail at TikTok, yellow shoe guy, anytime (laughs) you want. Um, (laughs) Cheap plug. Um, But yeah, so the event like kind of like grew into its own and I didn't realize it was a house show thing. Like I always thought like it was just the big show blow off. Um, I guess that's, you know, stupid young me at that point in time. Um, Cause I was actually young at that point in time. Um, were you I think you really were was... young though. You might've been sperm at that point.
1: I was by the late eighties. I was around by the late eighties. barely. Okay.
2: Well, good, good. Um, yeah. So like where it started, you know, was this, you know, ultimate thing, like, you know, you just saw the buildup on TV, you didn't actually get to, like, you know, to, like, know that this was, like, some kind of event that was happening all over the place, unless you bought the Aftermaths, you know, Pro Wrestling, Illustrated, um, Inside Wrestling, those type of things, to where you got to see, oh, yeah, look, there's another War Games, it's another War Games, it's another War Games. I had no idea, and I watched or read those magazines constantly. Um, I'd say, like, it was, like, the mid-2000s or, you know, mid- Early two thousands, like where I was working in some locker rooms with some NWA veterans, and they were telling me about, oh man, I was part of this War Games and da 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 in Norfolk, Virginia, and I was like, what? I was like, that's, I had no idea. And yeah, they were telling me all about the stories. But yeah, the cast of characters that were in it, most of them, I'd say, are now WWE Hall of Famers. Um, I, I'd probably say about three quarters of the people that were in there um, were WWE Hall of Famers at this point.
1: So just hitting some of the high notes, um, we know natural in AEW, he'll be a Hall of Famer without a doubt. Lex Luger, Sting, um, the Road Warriors, the Midnight Express, the fabulous Freebirds, Brian Pillman, Scott Steiner, Rick Steiner, like Barry Windham, Kevin Nash, Kevin Sullivan, one man gang. Like we could go through here. This is like when you and I were talking about Mid-Atlantic. And we were talking about all the guys who held the title. We could spend an episode on just each person that I just rattled off. So what we've got to do is we've got to kind of look at the high notes of it, some of the the better matches. One of the ones that stood out to me when I was going through it initially was Sting Squadron versus the Dangerous Alliance. And a lot of people don't realize this. Arn Anderson, Bobby Eaton, Stunning Steve Austin, Larry Zabisco, and Rick Rude were a team at one point. They were the the Hills against the, the WCW Sting. Uh, 1992, um, where were you at in
2: 92? Uh, 92, I was a sophomore in high school, Coral Springs, Florida, um, was actually kind of like weaning away from pro wrestling as much. Um, I was in South Florida, so WWF was a bigger deal than where I'd grown up in Virginia with a WCW slash NWA uh, following so um, it was kind of like they were like on the back burners of anything that I watched this was also the steroid scandal I believe was right around this time so I kind of was like leaving WWF two because Hogan was leaving um, Flair had just jumped ship from WCW to WWE um, did that amazing Royal Rumble uh, the WWE yeah yeah WWF had They had every guy that I watched growing up. Kerry Von Eric, Dusty Rhodes, Ric Flair, the Road Warriors, um, Barry Windham. They had the majority of the old NWA slash WCW guys. So I was still watching, but I was definitely pulling away as a fan. I was kind of leaving it. Do you feel like the
1: WCW, when they kind of took over with the NWA after the Turner buyout happened, do you feel like that was a I'll use an analogy for college football. That's like a college football coach who comes in with a national championship team and then gets to, to go for a win. Because when WCW took over, they took over everybody that was still active in the NWA. So they got a lot of the flares and the Wyndhams. The uh, Midnight Express was over there. Um uh, Dusty Rhodes, Dustin Rhodes, like you had a lot of names that came over when the WCW buyout happened. Do you think that led to a lot of their success in the mid and late
2: 90s was because of who they inherited in the late 80s? You're talking WCW? Um, yes and no. Um, The biggest issue that I hear as a fan is Jim Hurt. Didn't know um, his, uh, what was it? How to scratch his, butt or wind his rich watch I don't know scratch or scratch your watch and wind your butt or something. Yeah. I don't know what Jim Furran says. Something like that. Um that was their failure. Like he, um one Turner said he wouldn't have bought the NWA without Ric Flair. And Turner posed on Pro Wrestling Illustrated with Ric Flair. Ric Flair had no idea what his true value was as a performer, pro wrestler, um member of the member of the company jim heard was hired in from what i understand like, i think pizza hut a little or papa john's or one of those
0: mm-hmm.
2: never had experience in a pro wrestling he just had experience as a ceo of a company and he didn't understand that like right away he had Flair cut his hair he broke up the horseman he put um then he brought the horseman back he put Paul Roma in as a horseman. He put Ole Anderson back in as a horseman who hadn't been a horseman in like five years, six years, like way past his prime. Um, He wanted Dusty to change. He didn't want Dusty to wrestle anymore because he's old and fat. Um, There was no value in Dusty Rhodes. Uh, There was so much difference and problem. He brought in the tag team, the Ding Dongs. You know the Ding Dongs?
1: I've heard of them.
2: The Ding Dongs were a tag team that wore these orange costumes, head to toe, orange costumes, kind of like the conquistadors, with bells on their outfit, with bells. And that was their thing, that was their gimmick. They're the ding-dongs. Um, it didn't make any sense. And it might, you know, honestly, it might have made better sense in a WWF circus way, like, because, you know, Vince McMahon once said the WWF is a circus. Like, there's in and out animals and... You know, freak shows and stuff like that. Jim Herd might have done better with WWF, but the NWA slash New WCW audience were Southern wrestling fans. They wanted hardcore, blood, guts, and stories, and it failed miserably. And that's why the guys like the Horsemen, Blanchard and Anderson, the Brainbusters, Flair, Wyndham, uh, Dusty. They all went up north, the road Warriors, all went up north, as they say, to the WWF. And it changed the dynamic of the WWF. Like you had now Kerry von Eric versus Rick Flair, 10 years after their epic matches um, in Texas, are now wrestling in a company that isn't known for wrestling, but is able to bring out their personalities. And for the first time ever, Kerry von Eric had a personality. For the first time ever, Hawk. Animal didn't have Paul Ellering and they had to speak on their own and they had personality. Um, you know, you had the Ultimate Warrior up there who had just transitioned from the Dingo Warrior in Texas. Dusty, who put polka dots over. Like, they gave him the stupidest gimmick ever and he got it over. Flair didn't change his gimmick, even gave him his NWA belt and was still able to prove the critics of the WWF wrong because he went over there and got over um you know and he had some he had some great matches with some guy named Hart. brett is it brett is that his name yeah i think I, man i
1: think you've heard, i think you and i've had a discussion about brett hart in the past um so yeah let's take a, a twist looking at it so the the war games match are notorious for being in a cage the original ones had a roof but there was always kind of that that blood and guts twist to it so going back the original hardcore wrestling dates back to like 1981 in American wrestling uh the the Tupelo concession stand bra um, all of those guys so when you by the time you get into the 80s you've had a lot of good street fights you've had a lot of that when we talk about the weapons used in the 80s versus the weapons used today that back then it was a lot of chairs a lot of trash cans a lot of chains you didn't really see a whole lot of table bumps as much back then. Whereas today's crowd, they seem to, they itch for that table. Like, let's talk about that a little bit because it was more than a match. Um, they like to put a hat on a hat. And one of the things they went with was the, the hardcore side of the, the war game. So let's talk about that now.
2: Yeah. Um, so the originals didn't really have as much like foreign objects or whatever um, in the ring but the cage was itself a foreign object and the original cage for the uh first war games in 87 was very low um in fact jj i think uh it was where he separated his shoulder because the cage was only a few feet higher than the ring like meaning the guys are six foot so the cage is probably like seven or eight foot like it wasn't that big you know cage to keep people out it had a it had a top so everybody was stuck in. Um, And that cage wasn't even, like, high enough. Like, I remember, so, Hawk came off the top rope, could barely leap. JJ could barely sit up on animals' shoulders without hitting the top of the cage. And he took an awkward bump, uh, threw his shoulder out. Um, Later on, I think it was Sid Vicious that tried to powerbomb somebody, and when he went up, it, like, the guy, like, only went up, like, halfway and smacked the top of the cage. So, The cage itself was a weapon and it was brutal. Like it wasn't, you know, you didn't need chairs or chains or, you know, tables or any of that other stuff. The cage itself was a weapon and the match design you were inside a weapon. It was almost like, you know, it's near Halloween season. Like it was almost like a jigsaw type of thing. Like it was, he was setting you up to like figure out how are you gonna survive this thing? Like, how are you gonna survive this cage? How are you gonna survive this match?
0: So, uh,
1: when we talk about recently, so let's roll through, we're gonna go down the list a little bit. Um, We had at the very end, we've gotten up to, we'll roll through the 90s. You had some NWA versus WCW matches with uh, Luger, Flair, Anderson, and Sting versus NWO. Um, In 96, um, we had the two Stings. Let's talk about the NWO Sting or NWO Sting versus the WCW Sting when there were two Stings in a match.
2: Yeah, I, you know, it was an interesting dynamic. Um, obviously, um, you know, when you're imitating somebody else, like, you know, you've got to imitate their moves. It's Undertaker versus Undertaker, um, Ultimate Warrior versus uh, Renegade, uh, you know, that type of thing. Like, you you know, you've got to feel that, like, you have to really feel for the guy that's imitating the original because they have to go in there and duplicate these moves from the original who, you know, their the moves aren't going to be as good. They're not going to be as crisp and the fans are going to judge them on every single thing that they do. And, you know, Renegade unfortunately took his own life because what they figure was he was never going to be the warrior. Um Brian Adams also, or Brian Adams, or was, was it Brian Adams or Brian Clark that was the Undertaker too? Whichever one it was, they ended up passing away as well. Um, you know, it's a tough, it's tough to imitate somebody like that. Sorry, the dog's trying to get in. Um It's, and that's, you know, that was the, that was that part of it was, you know, that match was really good. But I think the, one of the biggest issue is if you have a mirror image in the ring going against you, it's not going to be a fun match because the one guy's working to work and sell and put on a good match. other guys working to imitate the original and i think that's that's one of the issues that's also is that the one where they change it to instead of two teams it was three teams
1: no the first three was this still a two-team match it was a two-team match the one after that and uh i just was reading about it because it was nwo nwo wolfpack and team wcw that was in 98 um because starting after 96 with hogan's hill turn and the formation of the nwo for the next four years, 96, 7, 98, and 2000 was all, um, no, not 2000. It was Team WCW versus NWO. And that was the big thing, which is a good segue for us. Because when we got over to NXT, and I know you're not as familiar with these, it was usually the Undisputed Era, which was like their version of the NWO, I guess. Like, you know, their would Let's teams. say NWO or Horseman. I think really more Horsemen. You would think it would be more like the horsemen? I guess huh? it would be looking at it. Kyle O'Reilly, Bobby Fish, like they're both really great technical workers. I feel like Adam Cole, the mouthpiece and the leader, was a good one. Um, Roderick Strong, he's once again one of the best technical wrestlers right now, currently on the roster. He's the NXT Cruiserweight Champion now. So he, he broke up. Oh, are you there? Can you hear me?
2: Yeah. Yeah, okay. he froze. Uh,
1: sorry uh so yeah roddy strong's got he's all he's got to do is win the heavyweight title now and he'll have the the grand slam for nxt um so when when nxt started the war games concept and nxt branded events they did the two rings with the cage they raised it up to the wwe style cage and then put a lid on it or no they don't have a lid on it they don't have a lid on the current ones that's right um So let's talk about when they started doing that. The original one in 2017 was a three-team bout. It was the Undisputed Air versus Sanity, and then it was uh, the Authors of Pain. Um, So like those right there, that was kind of an homage to having multiple teams in it, but it was still the Undisputed Air versus two other, it was Undisputed Air, which was a Hill faction, Sanity, which was a
2: Hill faction, Hey, back. I can't hear you. OK, so that's my edit point, so I know where to cut. Um, when I was- <laughs> we had
1: the you had the authors of pain, which were kind of a, an in between. They weren't really a Hill or a babyface faction either, but then you had the two definitive Hill factions with the Undisputed Era and Sanity, um, Killian Dane and Eric Young with Alexander Wolf. Alex Wolfe went on to become a member of Imperium and then he got nixed last year in the big cuts that came through. Um, then when you get back a year later than that, once again, Undisputed Era. What about Pete Dunne, Ricochet and the War Raiders? Are you familiar with the War Raiders? They're the Viking. Yeah.
2: Um. Are they the Viking experience?
1: They were. Then they became the Viking Raiders when they
2: combined everything. Yeah. Um. So first off, the NXT War Games is definitely a WWE version of War Games. Um. I always understood that Vince McMahon was very anti the two ring, only due to the fact that it took up chair space and didn't put as many butts in seats. Um. Also, it obstructed the view of the. Um, guests that are there or you know customers. Um I guess our business, their are guests. Um so that was one thing, one thing that without the roof, I understand high flyers and coming from the top of the cage is exciting, but it takes away from the brutality of the story. Like it's not about high spots. It's about brutality and devastating spots. And now if you do a you know 360 dive from the top of a cage, that's nothing, but I guarantee you that if you pick somebody up like Sid did for that power bomb, and you ram their face in the top of the cage, that's devastating, and that that's more memorable now, unfortunately, than a three sixty off the top of the cage because everybody does three sixty off top of the cage or a splash off top of the cage. Where Jimmy Snuka made a splash off top of the cage special, now it's that's just a spot like that's not even a finishing spot. That's the middle of the match spot, and I really think that WWE dropped the ball when they did that. And they kind of did the same thing with the elimination chamber by raising the roof because it was no longer the danger of, like, who um, was a Rob Van Dam that jumped off and hurt Triple H in the elimination chamber mm-hmm. because the roof was too, yeah, too small. Um, you know, you miss that element. And I get it. It's entertainment. And we don't ever want anybody to get hurt. I'm not saying I ever want anybody to get hurt. But I do want the attraction or the feeling that I think that somebody could get hurt. And I would trust these professionals not to hurt each other in an environment that looks like you should get hurt. And I feel like the new Elimination Chamber, although it's great that it's back, is now a Vince McMahon, WWF, WWE production versus that brutal match to end a feud
1: when you talk about ending a feud and you you say things like the the internet community for wrestling loves when you say things like long long-term storytelling like that's their big thing when you talk about long-term storytelling in a match you talk about the build-up you talk about the individual matches between each member you talk about tag matches you talk about grudge matches and then you build up to the, you know, the, the big show that brings it all home with war games. Do you feel like the WWF isn't utilizing that aspect of it and they throw it together? Because like last year you had Team McAfee. Like what point, like what, at what point ever, did it, which by the way, Pat McAfee didn't
2: do terrible. He wasn't good, but he didn't do bad. I'll give him that. He's a rookie of the year. Yeah. One match, two matches, he's a rookie of the year. The guy came in, he understands the business, he understands what's to be a heel, he is an athlete, that guy, does, he's a commentator, he's an entertainer, he's a pro wrestler. He would fit in, if you put Pat McAfee in 1987, he's Ric Flair.
1: Do you really think so? When I watched him work, my biggest take home from it was, he looked green, and yeah, he had only been in a handful of matches, he only had to think. The one thing that I like most about him was how good of a mouthpiece he is. I feel like they've utilized him best in the commentary table, but like when he was building up to the match against uh, the undisputed era and Adam Cole, like, I feel like the grudge match that he had against Cole was fantastic. And then it built up the team McAfee versus team uh, undisputed Era, And I thought that was a good buildup. I feel like it was a risky move to put somebody that green In that style of match though and i'll use that as a segue to talk about how in 2019 was the first time they had a ladies board game match and uh you i know you have mixed emotions on the ladies matches so uh i'm gonna say that the first one in 2019 was my personal favorite that was the the heel turn between tegan knox and dakota kai that was uh team rhea ripley when uh, they won candice loray tegan knox dakota kai and Ripley and Bianca Belair was on the other team. Kaylee Ray, who was at the time, was the NXT uh, Women's uh, UK Champion. Like great names, for people that are currently on the main roster. But like, what what do you think about it? The first time they incorporated a women's working match.
2: So, I might sound like a tennis rack swinging um, podcaster at this point. The women don't. Have to imitate the men. When you do a War Games match with women, it's like being NWO Sting. It's like being Renegade. You're imitating the original. You don't expect a woman's match to be as violent and as brutal as a men's match. Because if you ever see women fight at a bar versus men fight at a bar, You're seeing hands open, women, hands closed, men. It's a different kind of violence. It's a different kind of story. And I don't really feel like you need to imitate everything because it feels like imitation. It feels like you're trying to be. I wanna be NWO Sting. I wanna be Ultimate Warrior Renegade. I want to be something that I'm not. And if you're gonna put them in the same, match like type i think you've got to change the quality or change the approach of the match so okay you're in a cage match there's been what two women i think victoria um victoria blood in a match in WWF. uh i think uh baker dr dr baker uh in the match now in a match against uh, uh thunder rosa yeah yeah so if you're not going to if you're not going to fully commit like i just don't feel like you know women create your own matches like i know brawn panties and um pillow matches and in the mud matches and all that kind of stuff that wasn't the creative outlet that they should be going to to be treated like true professional athletes. But at the same time, if the midnight express versus the rock and roll express was the first ever scaffold match in mid South, then ladies, what's your first match? What is going to be your first match to go above and beyond that the men want to imitate one day there's TLC there's, you know, everything else. Like in the days of like, you know, today's Hollywood where they remake all the movies that were good in the 80s and 70s and, you know, before, what is stopping them from creating the next great match? Like the Inferno match didn't happen until the late 90s. Somebody thought of it that long, that long in our history, almost 100 years after pro wrestling, the NWA first started. Why can't we go to that next level and create this next match for the ladies that is unique instead of following women's Royal Rumble, Women's Cage Match, Women's War Games, like stop the copycat thing and create something new and original. Because they're never going to be the horsemen versus Dusty's guys. And it's that to me is like that to me is where they're failing, um, not only as a division, but failing, you know, in the whole spectrum of things. Like, I don't want to watch a Royal Rumble and see Royal Rumble A and Royal Rumble B because I know Royal Rumble A, the men's, is going to be the top one. Royal Rumble B, not. War Games, Elimination Chamber, whatever else. That's my opinion. Send the hate mail. I get it.
1: Do you feel like you would look at it from it being a booking issue then? Like, they're just not getting the same creative that the male wrestlers are getting? Do you think that's it? Because they're not being as creative with the women's matches?
2: Yeah, I, I think that's one. I think, two, it's saturation of the product. Um, you don't put two war games, you don't put two elimination chambers, you don't put two um, Royal Rumbles on the same card.
1: Like the hell in a cell. If you want to
2: do that, then hell in a cell. You... You do women do, a women, do a women's pay-per-view and do a men's pay-per-view. And you know what? If one of them outdraws the other continuously, then you stop one of them. You know what? If the men outdraw the women every single time, every single month, then you stop it. And you make one of them a feature, which they used to be. Women, midgets, um, battle royals, they used to be features. Like, that's what brought people to town, was like, oh, my God, you know, it might be Hulk Hogan versus Paul Warndorf, but there's a midget tag team match. There's a ladies match. There's a, you know, two big guys match, Andre versus Stud. You start going back to features versus trying to feature the side act. Like, you never go to a circus and the clowns are the stars. They're the side act. And I'm not, I'm not not saying women are clowns at all, at all, especially blonde hair blue eyes. I would um, like, uh, to go on record
1: as stating, these are not the opinions of the team at Botch spots and hair shots. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, but I'm just saying you, you have to learn how to feature the specialty of an act. And if women are a specialty act, you feature them. And you know what, if you have a women's pay-per-view, maybe your specialty act on that women's pay-per-view is a men's match. Maybe it is a midget match, like maybe a big, a big woman's match. You can follow the patterns, but you have to, you have to make stuff special and make features. Andre the giant. If he wrestled every single week, isn't special. If Lord Littlebrook wrestled every week, he's not special. If Winnie Richter, Fabulous Mula wrestled every week, he's not special. Paul Hogan not special if you place them and make them special and feature them in certain acts, then it becomes a bigger deal. And that's what I'm saying is war games was not, it should not be a women's match unless you've got a bunch of hardcore women that you expect to be carrying chains and knives and guns and chairs into a ring
1: so i i disagree in some aspects of what you said i feel like i i can agree with the fact that it's a creative thing i feel like the creative department is just doing a whole lot of copying and pasting with the women's division i feel like in a lot of ways they when women started to become main eventers they just had to place women in these matches they needed a elimination chamber match with women they needed a Hell in a Cell match with women. And I'm not taking away because some of the classics that have happened, I mean, uh, the Sasha Banks-Bailey Hell in a Cell match was ridiculous. Like not a good women's match. It was a good match, period. And I feel like, yeah, I feel like the, I would, almost it's oversaturation because the women's roster isn't as deep. So there's a lot of hate coming through where you say people are saying they see say the same matches every week, week over week because, and I feel like that's because they want to give the women an equal shot, but because the talent in the roster isn't as deep, that's why you constantly see, you know, Lynch versus Bel Air, Flair versus Bel Air, Flair versus Lynch, Banks versus Lynch. Like you always see the same big four or five women's names because they know those are the big draws. They know those are the, those are the big ones that are going to get the butts in the seats and the, the eyes on the TV screens. And I feel like they're oversaturating the market using this ploy with the same four or five women, because it's almost getting, it's getting stale in the sense that we know it's gonna be a version of those four or five women on the screen at the same time.
2: Yeah, like why not do another women's evolution pay-per-view, but do all the gimmick matches, have a hell in the cell, have a Royal Rumble, have a, you know, scaffold match, have a, the hair versus hair, have it all encompass all the men's matches. Like it shouldn't be, every pay per view should not be a women's version and a men's version because one of them gets watered down. And you see the same spots, whether it be the Royal Rumble where you got, you know, isn't it Bel Air that doesn't touch the floor and Kofi that doesn't touch the floor? Yeah. Um, you know, it's Sasha, you know, is great at Hell in the Cell. And then you got Triple H or. Um, You know, at this point, Roman Reigns, it's good at hell in the cell. Uh, Elimination chambers, you know, somebody's going to fly off the top of the pod. You know, you're seeing the same spots. And if a guy hits somebody over the head with a chair at 240 pounds, 260 pounds, with the velocity and muscle of, um, of a man, and that person gets up, when a woman hits somebody over the head with a chair, at 130 or 160 or 140 pounds and hits a woman with a chair and they get up, it loses its dynamic. It loses its power. It loses what the impact of the chair shot was. It loses what the impact of the entire match was. And I feel like that's where now we got this WWF, WWE light version of it. Like if I saw one women's pay-per-view where they did all these gimmick matches, like WrestleMania 2000, all gimmick matches. It makes it more unique. And it makes it more fun because now I'm building the story that could be like four or five months long to get to this women's pay-per-view with all these different things. And, you know, if I start with the Royal Rumble at the beginning, maybe by the end of the night, the winner of the Royal Rumble gets the world title shot at the end of the night. So I'm more excited to watch the entire pay-per-view. But that's just me. You know, I'm a casual fan. Just a casual wrestling fan. Um, so when yeah, we ignore, I in, ignore the shirt.
1: I do like the uh, the CM Punk shirt. Um, rolling through the Champa Undisputed Era match when Kevin Owens comes out, that's always a good pop because they played the whole angle that they didn't know if they were going to have the fourth member. KO comes back. He gets the big pop, but then he turns around. They use the whole, is KO going to NXT? Is it going to be at Raw? Like, I thought that was a good story angle. The finish for that match, though, um, when Ciampa hits the air raid drop on Cole through the tables, I feel like that was one of those quintessential like WWE moments for me it was because it was a bunch of tables. It was a big step.
0: Now I can. Okay. So oh, um,
1: when they're in that match, they're doing, everybody's going through tables. I feel like that was the best of the NXT war games matches, which is the 2019 match with team Champa versus undisputed era. Did
2: you have a chance to look through that one? I saw parts of it. Um, I think anytime Champa involved in anything, it's like really good. Um, he's not, you know, I remember when he, when they brought him up to the main roster and he kind of like floundered. Um, and I don't know why, well, I do know why, like, he couldn't talk, um, in the main roster way. You know, he wasn't the Vince McMahon main roster talker. Plus, they put him with uh, Gargano, I think, as a tag team up there, and they were big in NXT, but just nothing there. Um, he he has great facials. Um, he tells a great story in the ring. Um, the Undisputed Error, they they were phenomenal. Um, you know, it for NXT, it was really good. And I say that as not an NXT fan because I'm just as big as most of the guys in NXT. So the believability, like the superhero aspect that I look for as a professional wrestler, like I can't do that type of thing. I lose it. But that match was good. The story was good. I'm a big Ciampa fan.
1: I think that he goes with the whole concept behind he wants to retire in NXT because he doesn't want to move up to the main roster. He doesn't want the the, the theatrics and the theater of Raw or SmackDown. He likes the intimacy behind it. He's been very vocal about being a fan of independent wrestling and the way NXT was originally being represented there. Now they've switched to this NXT 2.0 thing. I'm not sure where he fits in with that long-term wise because he's still a very dark character. They're, they really haven't adapted him to be part of this new bright, shiny new NXT yet, even though he's still currently carrying the strap.
2: Yeah, he almost reminds me of... um. Who's the NWA champion or was the NWA champion? Nick Aldis. Aldis. Um, He kind of reminds me of Aldis. Like Aldis is a very old school wrestling soul. Um, And I feel like once, I I feel like Billy Corgan one day will take the NWA to like further, further limits. Um, And I feel like Nick Aldis will be left behind once that happens. Um, Or even the guy that Aldis beat who, um, Who's the guy that Aldous beat for the championship? The NWA. Do you remember? When Nick Aldous the older guy, independent guy. I don't remember. But I feel like that's kind of like where, huh? I feel like that's where Chomp was kind of going, is he's ready to be put out the pasture. He just needs somebody that's going to put him out the pasture and be definitive about it, like Aldis was to um the former NWHM.
1: That's going to drive me crazy. I'm going to have to look it up and tweet it out. Now, once I figure it out, I can't remember who he
2: beat. be. Thinking. Yeah. Almost, almost like, almost, and almost like how Ric Flair put Harley race out to pasture. Like it's, and that's kind of a bad way to say it, I guess, but it's that next step.
0: Who's going to from
2: backland. Yeah. From, from backland to Hogan to from race to flair, um, you know, even, you know, from Rodgers to Sam Martino, or even uh, Rick Martell to Nick Bockwinkel in the AWA. Um, it's that it's that next step, that next evolution. And I feel like that's kind of where Champa is. Like, he's, he's great, but they need something. They need the next thing. They do.
1: All right, Bobby. Um, I appreciate you coming on, man. Um, sign up. Tell everybody where to find you
2: yeah you can find me on tiktok at uh yellow shoe guy i'm up to 598 followers only 402 more to go and i get to go live so look at me open mic live thousand followers look out all right bobby as
1: always my friend i appreciate you coming on and chatting about some wrestling with me and i'll talk to you soon
2: all right bro see you soon
0: Now as we close another episode of Botch Bots and Chair Shots, I'd like to take a chance to thank you for listening. Now I want to remind you to go to wherever you pick up your favorite podcast—be it Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora. Geez, so many options! Just take a moment, like, subscribe, unsubscribe, then subscribe again. Leave a comment telling us how great we are or how terrible we sound. Either way, it helps the algorithms and finds new listeners. It's going to help get our word out there. Make sure to follow us at PodSpots and Share Shots on Twitter and Instagram. I am your host, the Will Gray, and thanks for stopping by and listening, my people.